believe by now most of you have met Doug as you were here either for first service. I see a couple of faces that are staying over for second and uh, then of course in our class time as well. But I do want to uh, introduce to you a good friend of mine, someone that I treasure uh, being around and hearing and picking his brain. He is the professor at ch of church history at Abilene Christian University there in the Graduate School of Theology. Also serves as the director for the Center of Restoration Studies. Uh, an author of many published works, currently working on a biography of Alexander Campbell to be published by Erdman's and also the general editor for a global history of the Stone Campbell movement. I want you to know that uh, it's a great privilege to sit at Doug's feet. Uh, Doug is uh, known as the leading historian among churches of Christ. Uh, throughout the world, when someone wants an opinion of what's happened in churches of Christ in the Stone Campbell movement, it's Doug Foster that they call. And, uh, but you find him to be a very approachable person, someone who loves God's church. Doug. Thank you, Tommy. Well, it's a privilege for me to be at Johnson Street. <clears throat> I've known about this church for a long time, partly because a person that I love, although I never knew personally, but a person who I love and I think in many ways embodies the kind of Christian life that I would like to, to have in my own life, had a hand in the beginning of this church. His name was T.B. Larimore. If you were here for the class a few minutes ago, there was a picture of him and a little bit of a glimpse of some of the spirit of that person. Uh, Tommy asked me to talk about a place to stand with the idea that we as a people, as a people with a history and a heritage, have some things that are strengths in Churches of Christ, in this Stone Campbell movement, in this Restoration movement, there are some things that are strengths that we bring to this day, to the 21st century. Sometimes we don't know about those things. Sometimes we remain ignorant and we can't have a sense of the richness of that heritage. We're humans. We're just like every other group, movement in the history of Christ's church. We have our frailties we talked about some of those, those temptations in our class in the last hour. But I want to focus on one area, like I did in the first service, in this service. I want to focus on one of those areas that I think we as a people have had a place to stand. Not sometimes without problems, not sometimes without having a temptation to become not what the scriptures would reflect, but because I think it's something that's part of who we are and that we can reclaim. One of the things that comes to my mind whenever I think about this is the prayer of Jesus Christ on the cross, just before, rather, he went to the cross, the last thing on his mind before he was crucified. You know this passage, but let me read it again. I ask on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become completely one. So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me, loved them, even as you have loved me. It was Jesus' dying prayer. It was the last thing on his mind before he was taken and crucified for us. And apparently he considered the unity of his followers to be the single most important evidence to the world that he really was who he said he was. Skip 1,800 years to a person who was one of our more immediate leaders, Barton W. Stone. He writes this in his paper, The Christian Messenger. The union of Christians is the will of God, the prayer of Jesus, and the means of bringing the world to believe in Jesus. Therefore, it must be right. And that person is then engaged in a righteous work who labors to promote this union by removing every obstacle to it. But the one who acts a contrary part must be wrong and engaged in a work in opposition to the will of God, the prayer of Jesus, and the salvation of the world. Those are the words of Barton W. Stone, writing in his paper, as I said, The Christian Messenger, a key leader in the reform movement that churches of Christ share in, a person who had a clear vision of the unity of Christ's followers that Jesus prayed so fervently for just before his death. The fact of the matter is, all of the founding leaders of this movement, this Stone-Campbell restoration movement, had a deep sense of both the God-given unity of the church and their duty to recognize, proclaim, and keep it. If you were here for the class, you remember that Barton Stone and a number of his colleagues, he was a Presbyterian minister, they worked primarily in Kentucky and Ohio, they killed their successful new Springfield Presbyterian Church for the sake of unity when they wrote a document called The Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery. 1804, this is one of our founding documents. We will that this body, this body that was keeping them apart from other Christians, be dissolved and sink into union with the body of Christ at large. For there is but one body and one spirit, even as we're called in one hope of our calling. And then again, Thomas Campbell in western Pennsylvania, in his explanation of the Christian Association, a group that had formed to try to bring about unity among Christians and evangelism. They asked him to write a document to explain what this Christian association was all about. And so he titled it The Declaration and Address, and he wrote in 1809 part of that document, The Church of Christ, that just means Christ's church upon earth, is essentially, in its essence, intentionally, in its Purpose and constitutionally, in its very makeup, one. Consisting of all those in every place that profess their faith in Christ and obedience to Him in all things according to the Scriptures. They say they're Christians. And that manifest the same by their tempers and conduct. They show that they are. 
None else can be truly and properly called Christians. That's Thomas Campbell in the Declaration and Address. The leaders of this movement realized that Christ's church is one in its very essence. And they understood that it was their responsibility to recognize and maintain in a visible way that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This was a place to stand. This was a place where they took a stand. This plea, this ideal was marvelous, even breathtaking at times in its simplicity and appeal. Thomas Campbell envisioned in every town, every village, every crossroads, every neighborhood, all of those who claimed to follow Christ would come together in one place and worship together and work together. It's certainly a New Testament vision. Problem is, it didn't work that way. The realities of this fallen world quickly set in on this ideal. Christians continued to do what people have always done, to congregate in groups with a common history and a common set of beliefs and to teach and practice what they had come to believe. And unfortunately, often to denounce other groups who had done the same. We did the same. We did the same thing. We created a whole new grouping of churches that in the 19th century were called Christian churches or churches of Christ or disciples of Christ. The names were used interchangeably in those days. And that's simply what happens. It's human reality. It's just the way humans do. I would suggest perhaps a different way of looking at this reality A couple of brothers, James North and Barry Callan, a few years ago wrote a book called Coming Together in Christ. This is a book calling, recalling the things that had been said in our own movement, but then calling again for people today in our churches to reclaim that unity ideal. And they say in one part of that book, there's nothing inherently divisive in a group of Christians following the natural sociological process of denominating itself. That means naming itself, identifying itself. Diversity is not division when the spirit of relating to those beyond the group is kept alive. Diversity is one thing while a spirit of division is quite another. Every Christian has a legacy and every other Christian, we experience that legacy only as we receive each other and relate to one another. Do you know what a paradox is? It's not two docks where you put your boat. It's P-A-R-A-D-O-X, paradox. Well, I think we've got a paradox here. A paradox is where you have two statements of fact that according to human reason, both can't be true at the same time, and yet they are. That's one way of defining a paradox. Does that make sense? So what we have been told is, very clearly, God has made His church one. There is one body. Okay? That's just clearly taught in the Scriptures. We don't create it. 
We don't make it. In fact, sometimes we can mess things up when we try to come up with various kinds of schemes. The church is one. That is a fact. And yet, we have something to do with this. That same passage, Ephesians 4, says we've got some responsibility. We've got to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Jesus was praying. Remember, the last thing on his mind before he's taken and crucified was that his followers be one. If he didn't think there were going to be some kind of problems, he wouldn't have been thinking about it so much. We've got something to do here. God created it. It's one. We don't create it. We've got to do something about the unity of the church. That seems to me to be a paradox. Well, paradoxes are strange things. They hold things together that according to human reason can't both be true. They can't go together. And because of that, we tend to emphasize one side or the other. And if we fail to hold tightly to both parts of the paradox, we can fall into dangerous misunderstandings. If, if on the one hand, for example, we focus on the fact that unity is already a reality, it's easy to assume that we don't have anything to do. In fact, the temptation is to assume that the people with whom we are visibly united are the only Christians. There's obviously nothing we can do or should do for Christian unity because those folks are not part of us. Those, part, those people who are not part of us are not Christians, and so the true church is still visibly one. And I talked about in the class Moses Laird. His name, remember, L-A-R-D. It looks like lard, but the family always says Laird. They were Scottish extraction, so I guess we'll go along with that. But Moses Laird wrote an article, a classic article in 1866, where he said basically if one church becomes heretical or 50 church, churches become heretical, they're to be repudiated, but this is not a division in the body of Christ. It's the creation of a faction that's condemned in the New Testament. It's not part of the church, and so it's not a division. It's an apostasy from them. The case, therefore, presents no difficulties. Now, the end result of this way of thinking is ultra-exclusivism, sectarianism, and entrenched division. The only solution to avoiding destructive tendencies like this is to hold tenaciously to both parts of the paradox. Unity is a gift from God and it is a calling for us to be active in. A gift and a calling. And that's not always very easy. But the founding leaders of Churches of Christ saw this as a place to stand, a place, place to embrace the God-created unity and to make it visible. Now let me talk quickly about three things that have to figure into this conversation. First of all is the matter of who is a Christian. Now it's true that not everyone who says that they are a Christian, according to Scripture, according to the New Testament, can legitimately claim that. 
There are some things that are specifically said in the New Testament. If a person claims to be a Christian, but this is characteristic of them, they're not. They have to be either disciplined or even disfellowshipped. But the list is fairly short. I've thought a lot about this over the last 20 years, and I said at the first service, the problem with making lists is that you always leave something out. My great example is camp. Every year when I was the minister at a church in Tennessee, we'd have church camp in the summer, right? So we'd, the group that's planning it, the adults would get together, get our rules out, make sure we had all the rules just right, length of shorts, when they can wear swimming suits, when they would do all this and this kind of stuff, how uh, girls and boys could be together and, and not, and all the different rules. And we thought we'd covered all the bases. We'd get to camp and three or four things would happen that were not covered by the rules. So we'd have to go back, redo the rules. So I'm under, I understand that making lists is inherently problematic. And I, I'm not claiming that my list is the perfect list, but I've thought a lot about this. And I've read the scriptures with this in mind, and I've talked to other people about it. Here's my list. The things that the, the New Testament say, if a person says they're a Christian, but they're characterized by these things, they can't really be held in fellowship. Number one, refusal to repent of personal sin against brother or sister. Remember that one? It's in Matthew 18. There, there's something that a person has done and you, against you, and you go to them, and they refuse to repent. You take a second person they still refuse to repent, and then you take it to the church and you disfellowship them. Number two, gross, unrepentant immorality. In 1 Corinthians 5, where the man was having sexual relationships with his stepmother, it says, cut him off. A life, the person was coming to church. They say, cut him off. Three, a lifestyle of selfishness. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Number four, refusal to work and feed your family. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Remember that one? person that will not work, provide for his family, you treat them like an infidel. Number five, denial that Christ came in the flesh, 2 John 10. Number six, trying to be justified by the law, that is to establish yourself as righteous through your own efforts. Galatians 5, 4 says those people have cut themselves off from Christ. Number seven, denying the coming resurrection. Hymenaeus and Philetus in First and Second Timothy. And then number eight, causing division, Titus 3.10. Now again, I'm not claiming that my, my list is the absolute final word on this, but, I, but, but, but you know, I've thought about it, and look at what these things are. Most of them, almost all of them, have to, be, have to do with personal morality. Attitudes, arrogance refusal to work, immorality, personal sexual immorality. The only two that have to do with doctrinal matters have to do with the person and work of Christ, the resurrection and the fact that Christ came in the flesh. Now Jesus says that there always will be false prophets in Matthew seven fifteen through 20, but he also says that you'll know them by their fruits. Fruits that certainly include the items that we've just talked about and are reflected in the description of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. So, maybe we should think a little bit more about those lines. Number two, the condition of your heart 
your attitude, if you will, is crucial for true Christianity. I think the attitude is foundational for breaking down barriers, for bringing Christians, followers of God together, for working toward Christian unity. This is true throughout the Old and New Testaments. We could have a whole semester of lessons on passages that say this. Let me just give you four quick passages. Remember David, after he had had this this sin with Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet comes to him and gives him a parable, but David is so crushed when he realizes the sin that he's been involved in, and he says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In Micah 6, when God sets up this courtroom scene, the people of Israel are there and they're saying, what do you want, God? Why? We've done everything we thought you wanted us to do. We've been to church, we said the right things, we offered the right sacrifices, and you're still angry with us. What do you want? And he says in Micah 6, verse 8, he has showed you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In Matthew 18, when his disciples were arguing over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In Ephesians 4, in that chapter that we've already mentioned a few times, that says there's one body and that we must maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Ephesians 4 verse 2 Paul says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another, putting up with one another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Correct belief and practice are not irrelevant. That's not the point. The point is that the Scriptures are plain about what is the foundation. You can't be right You can't be sound in doctrine unless that is founded on the attitude of humility and mercy and gentleness and love of peace and forbearance. Doctrine is never an end in itself. Healthy or sound doctrine is important. Sound doctrine just means healthy doctrine. Do you have a sound body? It means you have a healthy body. It's important. But not so we can state all the right intellectual propositions. Not so we can beat somebody in a debate. Not so we can impress people with how doctrinally correct we are. Sound or healthy doctrine is important because as we grapple with those wonderful ideas, it transforms us into the likeness of Christ. If you can say all the right things and do all the expected things, even quoting Scripture to back everything up, but you demonstrate the works of the flesh, quarrelsome, factious, selfish, that person is not sound. Satan quoted Scripture. The devils believe on Christ and tremble. Sometimes we think that If we pursue unity, we're going to have to compromise or give up doctrines and practices that we believe are essential. Things that not all followers of Christ necessarily believe or hold. That we'll get on this slippery slope of compromise where there's no return. Have you heard the slippery slope argument before? Do you know the slippery slope argument? 
I don't know, every time I hear the, the term slippery slope, I see this big mountain with oil on the side of it, you know, like a big thick oil. So the idea is this particular idea or action might not be wrong or evil or wicked in itself, but if you do that, it's probably going to lead you to something else that's a little bit farther down the slope. And then if you do that, it's going to lead a little bit farther. And by the time you know it, you're down the side of that slope and shoop, you slipped right down to the bottom, to degradation, to apostasy, to complete being cut off from Christ. Do you know what the inherent fallacy of the slippery slope argument is? It assumes that you're already at the top. You don't have anything to learn. You're already perfect. That's the inherent fallacy of the slippery slope argument. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. If you think you are standing, if you think everybody else may have problems but not you, that's precisely the place where you are in most danger of a disaster, of a fall. Take heed, the King James Version says. Watch out if you think you are standing. And sometimes we have. The third and final consideration concerning standing for unity is that we are not implying in any way that insisting on attitude as the fundamental piece for our, our pursuing unity means that strong convictions are unimportant. In 1 Peter 3.15, we're told to be able to give an answer for everything we believe. I tell my students, we need to be... This is hard work, folks. We need to be able to say what we believe, why we believe it, and what would be lost if we did not believe it. Holding strong convictions and being able to articulate those convictions is right. It's essential. It's good. It's not holding strong convictions... Being willing to do the hard work of articulating that's the barrier to Christian unity. It's when human pride sets in. It's when we think we're standing and we think that we have finally arrived. We've gotten it all figured out. And our understandings become the standard for certifying whether anyone else is a Christian or not. For Barton Stone, he's just one of my heroes... One of the founding leaders, as I said, of Churches of Christ, a place, a person that we can really draw, I think, a lot from, the fact that he differed from someone on some doctrinal point or more, if he could see in that person the face of Christ, by that he meant a person who was willing to give up their prerogatives, their preferences, their desires, their rights to serve other people, If he could see in the other the face of Christ, the fact that they differed on one doctrine or another was not a reason to separate. It was a reason to stay together. To hold each other accountable. To learn from each other. To be built up by each other. I think that's a place to stand. My vision for the future of unity among followers of Christ, among churches of Christ, is not totally clear. Tommy's going to preach tonight on 1 Corinthians 13. He'll 
talk maybe about one verse, at least that's in the chapter. I see through a glass darkly. I don't see everything perfectly. But I don't have any doubts whatsoever that Christ's followers, that we, that the Johnson Street Church of Christ has something to do. And I know you're doing things. If we're not engaged in the work of reconciliation among Christians, among followers of Christ, we're not engaged in a work of God. I've focused on doctrinal and institutional barriers, but there are others, racial, ethnic, gender barriers, cultural barriers, economic What will the Johnson Street Church of Christ do? What have you done to recognize, realize, and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace among all followers of Christ? Sometimes it's not easy for us to discern exactly what our part in this paradox is, recognizing the oneness or the unity, but but our part of it sometimes is not apparent. We don't have to have everything figured out to know one thing for sure. Christ wants the unity of his followers. And we don't have to do everything to do something. I pray that God will give us all the ability to see our convictions, to know them, to grasp the reality of our unity in Christ, and with his guidance to do something, to do something to advance the unity of all of Christ's followers in San Angelo, Texas. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Doug.